We're going to go ahead today and read the 130th Psalm before we get started. And that begins with these words, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him there is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. All right, we're in uh, Ruth 4, 18 through 22 today. This is entitled, Perez to David, From the Breaker to the Beloved. And if anybody's watching online, you can read along. I've posted the notes in advance, and they should be online now because I schedule them, and they come up at 10.15. Uh, you can read along while I give the sermon. Uh, and also, I will have these notes um, for anybody that wants to see them because today's sermon is going to be a little complicated. There's going to be a lot of information, and uh, I don't expect everybody to say, oh, I understand what he's talking about. But the notes are there, and you'll be able to review them. And I, I think that even if you don't grasp everything and it gets a little long, that you will enjoy the pictures that are coming out of this particular uh, final portion of Ruth and then the analysis of the book of Ruth. So we're going to begin in verse 18. It says, now this is the uh, genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. So as I said, this is Ruth 4, 18 through 22. It's entitled, From Perez to David, From the Breaker to the Beloved. Now I want you to know, at 2.24 on the morning of 10 September, I was lying in bed. And I do this a lot when I'm typing sermons and I'm thinking about what's going on. It was 2.24 in the morning, I looked over, and I was pondering the enormity of what the book of Ruth actually pictures. And I was so overwhelmed with all that this story details, because it details you and me. If this is a story of redemptive history, we're included in it. And it's giving this great panorama of human history. I actually covered my face with my hands and I said, God, I am so unworthy before you. I was that overwhelmed just thinking about the book of Ruth there in the middle of the night. Many views concerning what the book of Ruth is showing us in redemptive, redemptive history have been given. A lot of people have done this in the past, but none that I know of take into consideration who Elimelech, Malone, and Kilion actually picture. Thus, they miss the actual overall significance of what we're being shown. Now, I'm going to give my thoughts on them, and I believe that they're correct, but you have to decide for yourself after considering the whole. The story of Ruth, as I explained in our first sermon, is one of five Megillah scrolls. It's read each year by observant Jews. This particular book is read at the Feast of Pentecost. Thus, it is particularly intended to picture that time in redemptive history, which is known as the Church Age. It is given to show how Gentiles were brought under the wings of the Lord and how the Church will be used to bring the Jewish people back to the Lord. Our text verse for today comes from Romans chapter 11. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Here he is. He's tending to an entire panorama of history, which is pictured in a short little book tucked away in a seemingly remote little corner of his word. And yet he is also tended to individuals in the story as well. 
In other words, just as they are a part of the story, we are too, because we're in the greater picture that's being presented. And so the minute care of the individuals and the minute care of the greater story must equate to the minute care that he dotes on each and every one of us. Ruth and Naomi had to wait until the end of the story to see the results of the story. But we get to see in advance the results of the pictures that they've made. Things that have not yet happened are still known to us. And so we can trust that because we are a part of that same larger picture, the end will work out fine for us as well. I know that if somebody was ready to take off my head for my faith, which seems more and more likely every day, that this particular thought would be a huge comfort to me at that time. He has it all under control, and this is just a step that I was ordained to take in the process. Israel has probably felt like the punching bag of the world for eons, but they won't always feel that way. Although they don't know it and they have not seen the truth of what Ruth pictures, they will someday. And they, like Naomi, will sit contentedly in the presence of their Redeemer, just as she did. This is a truth that the Bible presents to us, and it presents it in types and pictures that have to be drawn out in order to understand their meaning. But the meaning is there, and it is to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is the generations of Perez. It's verses 18 through 22. Verse 18 begins, Now this is the genealogy of Perez. The term genealogy is the Hebrew word toledot. It's the same word used for the first time back in Genesis 2, verse 4, which said these words, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This is the 30th time that a set of genealogies or generations has been listed in the Bible. Each comprises either a narration or a list of genealogies which point to God's work in redemptive history. This word, toledot, translates over into the Greek word genesis, which is used five times in the New Testament, but only once in the same sense from the Old. That is in Matthew 1, verse 1, which says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Each generation so far has built upon God's redemptive plans, showing us the main line which is reading to Christ, such as Noah, Abraham, etc. And then it shows branches off of that main line, such as Ishmael or Esau or other people like that. This 30th genealogy in the Bible is that of Perez, the son born to Judah and Tamar. From him, a list of 10 names are given. This is a common form of such generational genealogies. From Adam to Noah, there's a genealogy that lists 10 generations. And then you have Shem, who is the son of Noah, all the way down to Terah, who is the father of Abraham. That was a list of 10 generations. Here, from Perez, the son of Judah, 10 generations will be listed until King David. Verse 18 continues, Perez begot Hezron. Perez means to break through or break out or break open. He's the breaker. Hezron means enclosure, such as being enclosed or surrounded by a wall, like a village. 19. Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab. Ram means high or exalted. Aminadab means my kinsman is noble or prince of the people, depending on how you uh, 
look at the word Ami and Nadab. They're two separate words, but it's either my kinsman is noble or prince of the people. Verse 20, Aminadab begot Nashon and Nashon begot Salmon. Nashon means enchanter or serpent person. In essence, he's one who foretells. According to Jewish tradition, this guy Nashon was the first man who entered into the Red Sea during the Exodus. Therefore, Nashon is used as an appellation of a brave person who goes first in spite of any danger. Sounds like Christ, doesn't it? Salmon means garment or clothed. Verse 21, Salmon begot Boaz and Boaz begot Obed. Boaz means in strength or in him is strength, meaning in the Lord is strength. Obed means serving or servant. Verse 22, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Jesse means my husband as well as Jehovah exists. As such, the name Jesse contains the most profound notion that human marriage reflects divine revelation. That alone should tell us that the story of marriage in the book of Ruth is there to reveal to us a portion of God's divine revelation. David means beloved. Although the dating of this list from Perez all the way down to uh, uh, David can't be determined precisely, we can come close. William Usher, in his book, The Annals of the World, dates the time of Perez from 2236 from the creation of the world, and he says that David was born in 2919 from the creation of the world, and so this chronology here spans about 680 years. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your people with justice, so it shall be done. The mountains will bring peace under each church steeple and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. The children of the needy he will save and bless. And he will break in pieces this oppressor. They shall indeed always fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations through. Our second and final thought today, wonderful pictures. The book of Ruth is not just a love story or a story of the redemption of one family in Israel. God doesn't waste words. Nothing is superfluous and nothing that is needed is left out. It is all there for us to see. Every story is given to show pictures of other things. Ruth is just a little bit longer than many of these other type of pictures that we saw back in the book of Genesis. In the first chapter, six people were named, Elimelech, Naomi, Malone, Kilion, Orpah, and Ruth. The names of two specific locations were given as well, Bethlehem and Judah and the country of Moab. The family was further identified as being in Ephratah, Bethlehem. Each name's meaning was explained at that time. The story begins with the words, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. This then is the time of Israel's pure theocracy. God was the king and the people were under him. Eventually, this was replaced by the time of the kings. All right? The people got tired of the way things were and they asked for a king. At that time, the Lord said this to Samuel. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. The first period, then, is represented by Elimelech, whose name means God is king, or my God is king. Either way, he represents the time from the giving of the law of Moses through the time of the judges until the time of the kings. His wife Naomi represents the Israelite people. Her name means pleasantness of the Lord. 
It's a perfect name for the people he's called as his own. The two sons then represent the two kingdoms. The first is that of the northern kingdom known as Israel, represented by Kilion. His name means wasting away, and it perfectly describes what happened to those people. They were exiled by Sennacherib, king of Assyria in 722 BC, and they simply wasted away as a kingdom. Malone means man of weakness or great weakness. He represents the southern kingdom known as Judah. They were the bearers of the law, which is something that is actually termed as weak by Paul in Romans 8.3. And again, in Hebrews 7.18, it says this about the law. For on the one hand, there is the annulling of the former commandment, meaning the law, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. This then is a story of the people of Israel throughout their history, represented by Naomi, who is the only character who is consistently noted from the beginning of the book all the way to the end. Even though I showed that the movement of Elimelech and his family from Israel could not be considered disobedience, the pictures that that movement makes is just the opposite. It reflects the continued disobedience of the people of Israel. Throughout their history, the biblical record shows that they incessantly disobeyed God's commandments and also joined themselves to foreigners in their rebellion against him. Thus, they suffered exile. In their exiles, the theocracy and the kingdoms died. First, Kilion, representing the northern tribes, married off to the world and died as a kingdom. The people turned away, just as did Orpah, whose name means the back of the neck. They turned away from their religion and their homeland. They were married off to foreigners, and the kingdom ended. I explained that Kilion was the elder of the two, but that doesn't seem to make any sense, does it? Didn't the southern kingdom come first? The answer is no. There's a king that is overlooked by almost everybody. Every scholar just kind of overlooks this guy, and yet he's identified as a king at the same time as King David. Going to 2 Samuel chapter 2, we read this. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. The kingdom of Judah came after Saul and during the time of Ishbosheth. This is important later in the story of Ruth. Malone, the younger son, picturing the younger southern kingdom of Judah, returned after their exile, but only through Gentiles pictured by Ruth. They were subject to Gentile rule from this point on. They were no longer a kingdom, and Malone died. The kingdom ended. However, Gentiles clung to them, just as Ruth clung to Naomi. The Edomites, for example, were assimilated into the Jewish people in 129 BC under the rule of a guy named John Hyrcanus. Even the New Testament notes such Gentiles. Particularly, we see these uh, Roman centurions, but others are noted as well as coming and clinging to the people of Israel. The order is exact. First, Elimelech died. He departed while the other sons remained. Then the two sons died, but Naomi lived on. Naomi whom it is agreed by almost everybody, reflects the people of Israel, and Ruth, whom it is agreed by everybody, reflects the Gentiles, were being prepared for redemption, and it would occur in the land of Israel. The time that Naomi was said to live in Moab while everything happened was about 10 years, it said. The number 10, according to E.W. Bollinger, signifies the perfection of divine order. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. The cycle was complete, and it was time for a new direction. 
When Naomi was about to return to Israel, she said to her daughters-in-law, if you remember that wonderful passage there, she said, go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. When she said that, and I noted this last week, the word for dead was hamatim. It was plural, not singular. All three entities were dead. God was about to do a new thing. The time of the weak kingdoms, which was ineffective, had ended. But the line had been preserved even though the kingship was dead. In Jeremiah 22:24, this is recorded, thus ending Judah's kingship. Listen to these words. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, who's the king at the time, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my hand, meaning the, the royal signet, yet I would pluck you off. The kingship was ending. It was this king who was carried away exiled to Babylon. Thus, the kingly line was cut off. In his place, a puppet king, a guy named Zedekiah, was installed, and he too was eventually removed. The temple was destroyed, and Judah went into exile. It seemed as if that was the end of the story, and that the promise of an everlasting kingship to David had failed. But later in Haggai 2, verse 23, God made a promise to Zerubbabel that someday the kingly line would be restored through him. It would be someone who would come, destroy the Gentile nations, and reestablish Israel's kingship under a true theocracy once again. Here's that verse. It says, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. The signet was promised to be reestablished through him. His name means seed of Babylon. He is the link, believe it or not, between the two genealogies listed in Matthew and Luke. Those records went in different directions from David. One went through his son Solomon and one through his son Nathan, but they reunited in Zerubbabel. The line would come at that time. It would continue until the fullness of time would come and Christ would be born. He is the link. He is the signet being reinserted. It is at this time that the story says that Naomi heard that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. The word for visited, as I noted back in that sermon, indicates a divine superintendence over the affairs that were occurring. Bread had come to Bethlehem. Jesus, the bread of life, has arrived. Upon their return, Naomi said that she wished to be called Mara, not Naomi. She is bitterness from the Almighty, not pleasantness of the Lord. Though the name is not used again, Mara, indicating that she is still pleasantness of the Lord to the Lord, this state of bitterness remained for her until the final part of the drama was realized. At this time, Boaz enters the picture, which was at the beginning of chapter 2. His name means, in him is strength. Where Malone, picturing the law was weak, he pictures Christ who comes in the strength of the Lord. It is his genealogies which are reunited in Zerubbabel. He is the one who will bring back this theocratic kingdom. He is introduced at the time of the barley harvest. And barley, as I explained then, is the crop of hairy ears. It signifies awareness. In this case, the time of spiritual awareness has arrived. This is at the time of the Passover and the Feast of Firstfruits, both fulfilled in the work of Christ. He is our Passover lamb, and he is the firstborn from the dead. Ruth, then, is an insert story, a story which really occurred in redemptive history at the time of the judges, but it pictures much of the history of Israel. Ruth 2 and 3 
are then an insert into the insert story. Now, what does that mean? Well, to answer, one needs to remember that Boaz showed up at the time of the barley harvest. However, it says at the end of chapter 2 that Ruth stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. First, there's the barley harvest, Christ. Then there is the wheat harvest, which pictures the church age. This is symbolized by Pentecost, which is 50 days after the Feast of Firstfruits. It is when the Holy Spirit came to dwell among men. Because it says that Ruth remained in the fields of Boaz through both the barley and the wheat harvests, it is speaking of the entire church age. But the events of chapter 2 pictured Christ's passion. We saw this in the meal with the bread and the sour wine and the parched grain. Again, in chapter 3, it said, Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. This then is not chronological. The wheat harvest comes after the barley harvest, even though the end of chapter 2 mentioned that Ruth remained in Boaz's fields through both harvests, barley and wheat. In other words, the events of chapter 2 and chapter 3, and even a portion of chapter 4, are all an insert, leading to the final events of chapter 4. Christ suffered his passion in chapter 2, and the Gentiles joined him in this, receiving his work and asking to be brought under his redemptive care in chapter 3. Before that happened, Ruth had attempted to step back from the picture. If you remember what she did, she was going to let Naomi be the one to unite with Boaz. However, this wasn't the plan. The redemption had to come through Ruth. This is why the author identified Ruth as a Moabitess four times in chapter 2 and never once in chapter 3. The plan of redemption means that our foreign status is never considered. With Christ's work finished, we are no longer strangers. Only in chapter 4 is Ruth again tied to Moab. This is done three times to show that it is through Christ of the church that God would actually redeem Naomi, the people of Israel. And that then brings in the symbolism of chapter 4, after that little insert that we just talked about. Ruth had asked to come under the wings of Boaz in chapter 3. However, Boaz let her know that there was a closer redeemer. And so Boaz had to go to the gates of the city, the place where legal matters are settled to first straighten out that matter. This picture is a most unusual occurrence, which is found in the book of John. There in John chapter 12, without any real explanation beyond what we see here, it says this. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they said to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Before he could be our Redeemer, he had to prove that he was qualified where no one else could qualify. He had to die in fulfillment of the law in order for Gentiles to come under his wings. Everything had to be fulfilled in a particular order, one thing leading to another. And so as Boaz went to the gate of Bethlehem, Christ went to the cross. The word for gate in Hebrew is sha'ar. It's the same word used, for example, in Genesis 28, verse 17, when speaking of the gate of heaven, when Jacob said these words. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. In that Genesis sermon, we saw that the gate pictured the work of Christ. 
The same is true here. The place of heaven's judgment is being pictured. There at the gate, Boaz awaits the Goel. When he shows up, he isn't identified by name. Instead, a term was used which concealed who he was while revealing his nature. When called, ten witnesses are brought in. Who are these ten witnesses? They are the Ten Commandments, the representatives of the entire law of Moses. They are what witness to the standards of God. The nearer Goel is given the details concerning Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab. In other words, the people of Israel. They have an inheritance which is in need of redemption. They have no theocracy and they have no kingdom. To this unnamed Goel, the right to redeem is offered. Who is he? He is man under law. He is any man who is under law. In other words, any Israelite, male, who is living under the law. Why is he a closer relative to Naomi? Because he is born of a father and a mother of Israel, and thus he is a complete blood relative. Christ is also a nearer kinsman, but he is only related through the mother. Therefore, any man under law who could meet the demands of the law has the right to redeem. Boaz explains his right, and he agrees to redeem. However, Boaz then throws in the fact that Ruth is a Gentile wife of Malone, and he must marry her to raise up a son for the name of the dead. With this, the Redeemer resigns his rights. Why? The answer is that even if he thought he could keep the law perfectly, as the young man who came up to Jesus did, there is more involved than they realize. Jesus highlighted this to that individual. This guy is noted in all three synoptic gospels. Luke records him this way. And he said, all these things, this is Jesus saying, he asks, what, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus gives him the law. He says, do this and do this and do this. And the guy turns around and he says, all these things I've kept for my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. Truly, no one can meet the full measure of God's law. Thus, Israel was given grace one day a year, every year on the Day of Atonement. Where they failed under the law, if they confessed, they were forgiven. Thus, the law was fulfilled on an individual basis through the death of a substitute, year by year. All failed, and all either confessed or they were not forgiven. They were considered free from guilt because of this wonderful provision of grace which came year by year. In the case of the man at the gates with Boaz, he was told that he would have to acquire Ruth. Well, she's a Gentile, and the law anticipated that Gentiles would be brought into the commonwealth of Israel. This is noted throughout the entire Old Testament, but even in the law itself. First, I'm going to take you to Isaiah 49, verse 6, and it says this. Now think of Ruth. She's a Gentile. She needs to be redeemed. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, Naomi, okay, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. In Romans 15, Paul cites the law from Deuteronomy to show that this is true, even from the law itself. There in Deuteronomy 32, 43, it says this, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Man under law, the nearer Goel, had the grace of God extended to him on the day of atonement. But it went no further. 
He could not redeem the Gentiles. The Ten Witnesses, the Ten Commandments representing the law, testified against him. Only one who had perfectly fulfilled the law could redeem the land, qualify to marry Ruth, and raise up a son in the name of the dead husband, representing the dead kingship of Judah. And only this person could also redeem the Gentiles. Only Jesus qualifies. Only he was born under the law, but born without Adam's inherited sin. Only he is known to be in the kingly line, which descends from both Nathan and Solomon, as testified to in his genealogies, which met at Zerubbabel. Only he fulfilled the law as testified to by the gospel records. And therefore, only he is able to redeem. No other person could in the past, and no other person will ever be able to. Only Jesus Christ is qualified. The nearer Goel, man under law, realized this. And he plucked off his sandal and he handed it to Boaz, to him in whom is strength, and in picture, to Christ. In that act, he gave up any future claim to redeem and he faded out of memory. We need to remember here what Naomi said to Ruth after the night at the threshing floor. In chapter 3, verse 18, she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Now, while visiting this church during that Genesis 3 sermon, my friend Sergio was checking out the Hebrew and Greek of each passage. I don't know if you see him buzzing around in the front of the church when he was sitting here, but he's always checking things out. At the end of that sermon, he walked up and he said something to me which I had completely missed. He came to me and he noted that the word Naomi used for finish is the Hebrew word kala. It's the same word used in Genesis 2, 1 and 2, which says this. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished, kala. And on the seventh day, God, kala, ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he, he had done. This same word used by Naomi there in 318 in the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament was translated as the word teleo, which is not coincidentally it is the last word that Jesus uttered on the cross, as is recorded in John 19.30. It says, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, tetelestai, which is the word teleo. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The rest which Ruth looked for, the rest that Naomi looked for, and the rest which man has looked for since his fall, it's the same rest which became available to man at the death of Christ on the cross. The Lord finished his work and offered that rest to man. Man lost that offer at the fall, and he has sought it out ever since. That's what this book of Ruth has been saying again and again, talking about the rest of God. Christ, through his satisfaction of the law, has restored that opportunity to enter into God's rest once again. In him it is finished once and forever. Not too long ago, some of you know this, I went to a synagogue to observe the Shabbat service in respect to a friend that I went to high school with that was killed. After leaving, the Jewish man that drove me home told me these words. He said, the rabbi of the synagogue per perfectly fulfills the 613 laws of the Torah. How sad, how sad that they believe this. There is no other man than Christ who ever did and there is no man other than Christ who ever could. There is no longer a day of atonement either. That was fulfilled in Christ. If this isn't true, then no person is saved, and no person will ever be saved. 
He is our atonement. And apart from him, there's only separation from God. We all must take off our sandal and acknowledge that we have no right to step into his place. The ground where he stands is truly holy. Thus, after ceding his right to redeem, the unknown Goel is dropped from history, never to be mentioned again. The law is fulfilled and it is annulled. It is finished. It is obsolete. It has expired. The law can no longer provide the grace that it once did on the Day of Atonement. It is a heresy to claim that the Day of Atonement is yet to be fulfilled. It is finished. And so Boaz makes this statement, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malone's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malone, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. The word for dead here is not plural, like it is in verse 1-8 that I read you earlier when Naomi spoke to her daughters-in-law. It is singular. All are one, and all have been united and acquired in one great act by Jesus Christ. Elimelech, the theocracy, Kilion, the older brother and the first kingdom, Malone, the younger brother in the second kingdom, and Ruth, the Gentile people, are all his. What this means is that even the Orpas of the world can be redeemed through Christ. He, in one act, redeemed all people for himself and all rights to the kingdoms of both Israel and Judah, along with the theocratic rule of Elimelech. In other words, Christ is Lord. He is Jehovah incarnate. Ruth, the Gentile who has come under his wings, will be his wife to raise up the name of the dead. All of the dead mentioned. But this leaves the seemingly odd point that the child born to them, Obed, being Naomi's redeemer. Remember, I went on paragraph after paragraph saying that the child is the redeemer. Obed, the servant, is introduced, and Boaz just as suddenly leaves the picture. Obed is Christ, the servant. Just as numerous children who are born and who pictured Christ at their birth, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Benjamin, Perez, and others, Obed now fills this role. He is the servant that Isaiah speaks about many, many times in the Old Testament, and the one that Paul tells us about in Romans 15. It says there, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is the reason why Obed was named by the women of Israel and why they exclaimed, May he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. After the church age, Israel will be restored to life. This is depicted in placing Obed in Naomi's bosom. After all the years of separation and bitterness, Naomi will be redeemed through the child, and Israel will be redeemed through the servant. Thus, it is an implicit reference to the fact that the law is fulfilled and that this child, Christ, is the embodiment of the law. This is actually seen in the book of Revelation. During the coming tribulation period, Israel will call on Christ and will be saved in and through this time of trial. There in Revelation, it says this, But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, the woman is Israel, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished 
for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Just as the women prophesied over Naomi that the child would be a nourisher of Naomi's old age, so Christ will nourish the redeemed of Israel through the tribulation period and into the kingdom age to come. The pattern is exact and it is what we have been shown in advance of its coming. And this truth is anticipated. We talked about this in the six measures of barley that passed from Ruth to Naomi, from a Gentile to a Jew back in chapter three. It came from Boaz, picturing Christ. It went through Ruth, picturing the Gentiles, and it was received by Naomi, picturing the bitter Jewish people awaiting their redemption. As we saw, and as the Bible shows us, despite his intentions to be betrothed to the church, Christ has still maintained compassion for and a desire to support Israel until they receive him as their rightful redeemer and their king. He's kept them all of these thousands of years in anticipation of this day which is coming. It is through the same grace which saved and established the church that the remnant of Israel will be saved, not through the law. Paul explains this in Romans 10 verse 4 where he says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We see in this picture that the church was redeemed first through Christ and only afterward will national Israel be redeemed. This is the order which Paul meticulously explains in Romans 9 through 11, and which is also pictured in the story of Joseph's life, if you remember those pictures, back in Genesis. It's also mentioned by the prophet Micah. Here's what he says. Think of Naomi, think of Ruth, who each pictures. Therefore he, the Lord, shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. This prophecy from Micah is speaking not just of the time after the Babylonian exile, but after the time from the Roman exile as well. We know this because only after Ruth becomes Boaz's wife, and after the time of the entire harvest season, remember the barley and the wheat harvest, does the Messiah, the greater David, rule. Christ came the first time to serve and to suffer. He will come again to rule and to reign. And this is why the narrative closes out with the name of David, followed immediately by his genealogy. First it says, there is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's the end of the narrative story of the book. This is given to show the record leading up to David, who is the next major figure to picture Christ in the Bible. His life will anticipate the great coming king who will unite Israel under one eternal kingdom, who will shepherd his people and who will root out every form of wickedness and whose throne will be established in righteousness. David is noted here at the end of Ruth because of God's promises to him, which are recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here's what it says there. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established 
forever. Christ is, at this time, the Lord of the Gentile church, but he is not yet reigning from his throne in Jerusalem and amidst his people Israel. However, I would say that from the look of things in the world right now, it seems like that is coming very soon. Finally, the book of Ruth closes out with the ten generations from Perez to David. It almost seems like an afterthought, and most scholars, believe it or not, say that this was added many, many years later, and it has no true bearing on the narrative. But this is the furthest thing from the truth. If your commentary says that, what I want you to do is I want you to put a big fat X through it, and I'd like you to make it a red one for emphasis. This genealogy is an integral part of the book of Ruth, and it is given for several very important reasons. In fact, I found five important reasons. The first is that there is a requirement under the law which says that one of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. One of illegitimate birth is excluded until the tenth generation. And again, the law says, none of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. Even though Perez, who was born of an illegitimate union, was born before the law, his birth was still considered illegitimate under the law. And so David's right to rule could be considered invalid. Therefore, the genealogy is given to show that he is, in fact, the tenth generation from that illegitimate union between Judah and Tamar, recorded in Genesis 38. Thus, David is made known to be qualified to enter the assembly. He can sit on the throne. Likewise, the law also says this in Leviticus 18.11, The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, begotten by your father, she is your sister, you shall not uncover her nakedness. Well, guess what? Abraham was married to his sister, Sarah, the daughter of his father. Boaz is the 10th recorded generation from Abraham, and therefore David is qualified in this regard as well. Thirdly, this genealogy bears an unusual stamp that has been missing since the very fall of man. As I said earlier, the word for genealogy or generations is the Hebrew word toledot. This the first time that this word was used, I read you this earlier, was in Genesis 2.4. It said this, These are the generations, the Toledot, of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens, the earth and the heavens. The word Toledot in Genesis 2 verse 4 was prior to the fall of man. It is spelled, don't want to overload you with information, but it's spelled Tav, Vav, Dalit, Lamed, Vav, Tav. In other words, there are two vavs in the spelling. The next time that the word was used in Genesis 5, verse 1, after the fall of man, it was spelled with only one vav. The second vav fell out of the word, just as man fell in the garden. Vav is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it's pictured by a tent peg. All right, so remember that picture. The number six in the Bible represents, does anybody know what six represents? Man. It represents man, such as man being created on the sixth day. So you see, fallen man is what's being relayed in this missing vav. The second vav fell out of the word, just as the man fell from grace. The word toledot is used 39 times throughout the entire Old Testament in various places when referring to differing groups of people. But it is never spelled with two vavs again until this genealogy right here at the end of Ruth. In every occurrence between Genesis and Ruth 
and those after Ruth. Only one Vav or no Vav is there. There are not two Vavs. Only this other time. But in this genealogy, the lineage of King David is given and the second Vav is restored. Up until then, God was working through various people and various covenants. These were to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, and to Moses. The final covenant to be made is the covenant to David. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, this is the 30th time that this word Toledot is used in the Bible. As always, when considering a number, I go to Bollinger's work to see what he says about that number. He says this, 30 being 3 times 10 denotes in a higher degree the perfection of divine order as marking the right moment. And doesn't that fit perfectly? The 30th instance of the word is the right moment for the Vav to be reinstated into the line leading to Christ. David is the final peg in the line of covenants prior to Christ's coming. At this time, the second Vav is reintroduced to the word Toledot to indicate that the restoration of fallen man would come through the line of David, Solomon, Nathan, down to Zerubbabel, and then to Christ. In all, there are only these two times in the whole Bible that the word Toledot is used with two Vavs. Thus, they should form both a contrast and they should form a confirmation. In contrast, one was before the fall of man and one was after it. In one, man had no knowledge of good and evil. After it, he possessed it. In one, there was no need for a redeemer. In the other, there was such a need. In the first, man was destined to live forever. In the second, man was destined to die. In other words, everything that was possessed before the fall is in contrast to that after the fall. However, in confirmation of the two, they show that God has a plan and that it is being worked out. What was lost will be restored. The Lord that was seen in the garden is anticipated in the restored earth. Man was whole and man will be made whole again. It is all seen in this obscure word hidden in this genealogy of Perez through David. The 39 Toledots of the Bible correspond to the 39 books of the Old Testament. It is as if they are anticipating Christ to come. They're anticipating his work. The 40th such generation is the one that I mentioned in Matthew. To understand the significance of the number 40, again, let's go to Bollinger. He says that 40 is associated with a period of probation, trial, and chastisement. It is the product of 5 and 8 and points to the action of grace, 5, leading to and ending in revival and renewal, 8. In Christ, the time of trial and chastisement is ended. In Christ, there is grace, revival, and renewal. If you are born again through him, you are no longer fallen, but complete and alive forevermore. The likeness of God that was given at the creation and which was lost is now restored in us when we call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what these little things that are hidden in the Bible are telling us. Paul explains this mystery in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I put in some parenthetical phrases here, so uh, I'm not trying to add to the Bible. I'm trying to explain it. As was the man of dust, that's Adam, the fallen man, the man without the tov, so also are those who are made of dust. There's something missing. And as is the heavenly man, which is full and complete, meaning Christ, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, right? We're earthly, we're unspiritual, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man, restored and complete. We've got our vav back, people. Fourth, 
The ten names of this genealogy make a picture of the work of Christ to come. They are Perez, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, Solomon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and David. Their translation says, Breakthrough, Enclosure, Exalted, My kinsman is noble, Enchanter, Clothed, In him is strength, Servant, My husband, Beloved. Now, obviously, we have to add in connectors to these names, and without trying to stretch this too far, it makes a picture. It would then say, the one who broke through death is exalted. He is my noble kinsman, the foreseer, clothed in the strength of the Lord. A servant is my husband, beloved. It is a picture of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And fifth, a fifth and final reason that I figured out for this genealogy goes back to the story of Judah and Tamar. In that story, Tamar received the pledge from Judah, which consisted of his signet, his cord, and his staff. The Hebrew term there was eravon, a very unusual word which actually translates directly into the Greek of the New Testament. It means a guarantee or a deposit, and it pictured the Holy Spirit. That deposit belonged to Tamar until it was returned to Judah. That pictured the church age, as we saw during that sermon. This genealogy in the story of Ruth takes us from the church age through to the return of the people of Israel and to the time of the kingdom age. Thus, the placing of Obed in Naomi's lap pictures the redemption of Israel of the future after the church age. This then is looking forward to the tribulation and then the millennial reign of Christ. And so this genealogy is taking us from Perez, the breaker of death, all the way through to David, the beloved king, sitting on his throne, each picturing the work of Christ from Advent to Advent. The interim period is the church age. And I assume that there are many other reasons for this genealogy, but those are the five that I gleaned from it. Thus ends the book of Ruth in the beautiful story of redemption of both Jew and Gentile by the work of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, we could have gone through every detail in this book and gone through it and you'd see much more. But to keep this to a manageable level, I left out a lot of those details. I skipped over them. But there is one that I'd like to share with you before we finish. In the first sermon, I mentioned that there was a series of gender discords in this book. In the first chapter, there were nine of them. Seven were spoken by Naomi and two were by the author of the book. Then there is another one in relation to Boaz, where a word was used to describe him once in the masculine and once in the feminine. And finally, there is one in chapter 4. And nobody has ever been sure of why they are there. And many speculations have been given, but none of them have come to, to uh, answer the question. There's always something that's missing. However, after a lot of thought and a lot of missleep, and I mean this, I believe that there is an answer. These are the discords and how they're recorded. In 1, 8 through 13, the two daughters-in-law are referred to by Naomi in the masculine five times. They're girls, but they're referred to in the masculine. In those same verses, Naomi refers to the sons in the feminine twice. There in uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 22, the author refers to Naomi and Ruth, two women, as they travel from Moab to Bethlehem in the masculine. In 4.22, Rachel and Leah, the wives of Jacob, are referred to in the masculine. The reasons for these discords, I believe, can be seen when compared to who the people picture. The sons of Naomi picture the two kingdoms. Therefore, any future sons ostensibly born to them would also picture kingdoms. The word kingdom in the Bible is feminine. It's the word malachut, and therefore the sons are spoken of in the feminine. Naomi pictures the people of Israel. 
Ruth pictures the Gentiles uniting with the Lord God of Israel. Orpah pictures the Gentiles of the world not yet united to Christ. And Leah pictures the people under the law. We saw that many times during the sermons of her life. And Rachel pictures those under grace, as we saw many times during her uh, sermons as well. In the Bible, people groups are always referred to in the masculine, such as goim, Gentiles, or anashim, peoples. This then is why those gender discords are listed in the book of Ruth. It is referring to those bodies or groups of people to whom they represent. This fits the picture and it gives an explanation. It gives a reasonable explanation for these instances of gender discord. The other gender discord was in the words used to describe Boaz. As I said, in verse 2-1, it was in the masculine. In verse 3-2, it was in the feminine. And I explained what I believe was the reason for that gender discord in detail when we did that sermon. So I'm not going to include it again. In these instances of gender discord, one has to assume that the pictures that I've presented are correct. Who Elimelech pictures, who Malone pictures, and who Kilion pictures, etc. And that the plan of redemption shown in the book of Ruth is as I've described. They would also have to acknowledge then that the dispensational model of history is valid, meaning that the church has not replaced Israel. I personally believe all of those are sound, but each of us is accountable for what we accept. To me, I firmly believe that God still has a plan for Israel, and it is pictured perfectly in this book, this wonderful story of redemption about Ruth and Naomi. No other view of the Bible makes any sense at all without violating scripture to such a point that anything can mean anything. God is ever faithful to his people. He is true even to his unfaithful people that he has called. He loves them and he loves us as well and even enough to allow us to make our own choices. The greatest choice of all and the choice that will mark out our eternal destiny is what we will do about Jesus Christ. In the end, this wonderful book that he's given us is all about him. So if you've never understood the plain, simple message of salvation, I would ask once again for just another minute to explain it to you. The Bible shows us, as we've seen in this book of Ruth, that all are bound under sin. Adam fell and we are in Adam and we cannot redeem ourselves. God graciously gave the day of atonement to the people of Israel year by year so that they could confess their sins. But they can't redeem anybody else. It's an individual thing. However, Christ came. He was born without Adam's inherited sin. He was born of God the Father in the womb of Mary. And therefore, he was qualified to replace Adam. And then the gospel records show that he, in fact, did prevail over the law. He lived the law perfectly, and then he gave his life up in satisfaction of that law for you and I. If we simply call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Bible says that we will be saved. We move from Adam to Christ, and we receive his righteousness, and our sins are nailed to the cross of Calvary. And there is no other way that this can happen. There is no other path to God, despite what people all over the world are trying to push on the world, that there are many paths to God or that God allows certain things. He does not. He is infinitely just, righteous, and holy, and the law must be satisfied. So it's either going to be satisfied in you in condemnation, or it's going to be satisfied in Christ in salvation, because he already faced our condemnation by hanging on the cross. So please make the choice. Ask Jesus to simply forgive you of your sins. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, okay? Our closing verse today comes from Romans chapter 11. It's verses 26 and 27. See how this fits into the dispensational model, people. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. 
the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Great stuff, Jesus. Next week is Exodus. We're going into the book of Exodus. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. It's called Bitterness and Bondage in the Land of Egypt. That'll be our first Exodus sermon. And I'd like to tell you something I've told you for the past 12 sermons, and I'll never say it again. This is the last time you'll hear these words. I amended them for the book of Exodus, that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. He knows your trials, your troubles, and your woes, just like those two poor ladies at the beginning of the book. And he is there with you through them. So cling to him, just as Ruth clung to Naomi, and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Our poem today is called The Generations of Perez. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. It is listed as follows, just as the Bible says. Hezron begot, or Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram next, and Ram begot Aminadab, so says the text. After that, Aminadab begot Nashon, as the Bible so relates, and Nashon begot Salmon, telling us names, but no dates. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. These are the generations which are found in Ruth, and they are carefully placed here for us to learn. They show us glorious things and reveal deep truth, and knowing their meaning should make our hearts yearn. Some glorious day we will be raptured out of here. We will be in the presence of our wondrous Lord. And shortly afterward, purified Israel will shout and cheer when Christ returns to them, so says the word. And we have it all laid out before us here in detail in the Bible's pages, all of it pointing to our Lord Jesus, the plan of redemption for all peoples and all ages. Hallelujah to our great Lord and King. Hallelujah. Let us rejoice and to him make noise and sing. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this most marvelous of books and thank you for the pictures which are in there, which I personally feel are correct and that there is hope for Israel of the future despite their state right now. And it gives me the assurance that there is hope for us and that every word that you have said is a promise to each of us in the Gentile world will be vindicated, that we are saved through the blood of Christ and we are redeemed through him. We thank you for that. And Lord, we thank you for every good blessing that you've given us and we ask that you help us to just go forth in the power and the strength of the Lord and be willing to proclaim your name to all people who come our way, not being shy and holding back, but being bold about that. And Lord, we uh, would like to uh, pray for those that aren't with us or that had to leave because of the trials of the morning. Be with them and give them comfort. Let them know that there is a good end to the troubles that they're facing right now. And we'll be sure to praise you through that. We'll be sure to give you thanks and praise for it. And Lord, one more thing, I would pray that you would uh, help us to uh, go through these Exodus sermons that are coming up and to properly handle the word and to see wonderful things in it that you have intended for us to see. Help me not to add anything into there except that which you would want us to see, that you would be glorified through it. And we'll be sure to give you praise and glory and honor all the days of our life, even through the trials. We love you and we do praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We get the uh, words for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes these words, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, melech haolam, hamotzi lechem, min haaretz. 
Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup, and he would have blessed the cup as well. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment upon himself, will be, I'm sorry, will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I bet. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for allowing us to come to this table and participate in what you did for us on Calvary's cross. Thank you, and we love you, and we praise you, and we will proclaim your death until you come again. And may it be so. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.